Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to the Daily Evolver. And welcome back to part two of my analysis of the Jordan, Peter Jordan Peterson phenomena through the lens of integral theory. In part one, I explained a little bit about integral theory and that it is the theory that human consciousness and cultures are evolving through discernible stages of development and that there are three stages online currently in our developed world, traditionalism, modernity, and postmodernity. Each of these have their amazing gifts. Each were radical moves forward when they arose. Uh, each arises in conflict with the previous and with the rejection of the previous. And as a result, each has its downside not the least of which are its fanatics. <laughs> so um, I also make the case that there's a new stage of human culture and consciousness that is arising, which we call the integral stage. It's the post-postmodern stage. It's the stage arising out of postmodernity. And it wants to befriend each of the previous stages and appreciate the piece of the truth that each has. And, um, and bring that to a larger system, a larger mind and heart that can contain opposites, can, that can hold paradox, that can, for instance, fully embrace science and fully embrace spirit. Rationality, myth, yin, yang. And, uh, you know, I explained that. I've explained that in many of my podcasts. And this, the integral movement is about that. And uh, but I just want to just give everybody a, just a, a simple grounding. So I focused in part one also on the thesis that Jordan Peterson has many qualities of an integral thinker. Uh, he's, uh, for one thing, he can straddle all three of these uh, stages of development. That's, you know, that's sort of a, uh, a beginning of an integration that he can be in each of them. He is, you know, adequately postmodern in the sense that he sees a legitimate role for the political left, he's for equal opportunities for women and minorities, and, and so forth. That's how he defines it. But it is, these are postmodern realizations. Uh, that he also has a foot in modernity, in the sense that he is a college professor and he deals rationally and all of that sort of thing. But as I pointed out in part one, what makes Peterson especially interesting is that he has a center of gravity, uh, and you might just call it his heart, that is at home at the traditional level. And, um, and his book, which is a big bestseller, 600,000 copies, probably more by now, uh, is called 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. And as I said, you couldn't cram more traditionalism in eight words if you tried. Because, you know, traditionalism is about rules and roles and men being men and women being women. And his rules themselves are what start with stand up straight with your shoulders back. And it's all about the, the basically downloading of the civilizing qualities of traditionalism on the chaotic qualities of pre-traditionalism, which is what we call the warrior stage of development. 
So it's about delaying gratification, being a good person, being honest, faithful. Uh, and, and he also has this idea of growth and this growth to goodness and away from evil. And all of that is this, you know, antidote to chaos. And also, as I pointed out, it's a great service. He's doing great integral work in the sense that he has become a spokesman for a group of people. And these are people who, for one reason or the other, have not gotten the traditionalist download, actually. A lot of young people, particularly young men, um, that, you know, he provides a, a good, true, to, true and beautiful uh, installation of the traditional stage. And, um, you know, the, sometimes these uh, young people didn't have good role models. Sometimes they had postmodern parents who took, you know, they were kind of uncomfortable with traditionalism themselves, you know, the idea of patriotism and ethnocentric and, you know, uh, religious, you know, so these people don't have it. And um, so he's doing good work in that way. Um, so I do think, and I ended, I think, part one with this thesis, that he makes a significant mistake in his view, in his philosophy, uh, that creates a lot of consternation and conflict that I think Integral can help sort out. And the mistake is, that while we see post-modernity as being a stage of evolution that arises out of modernity, he sees post-modernity as being a mistake and being a wrong turn and a totalitarian ideology that he traces back to fascism and, and, and Maoism and, and earlier. And that is, you know, a problem. So, you know, there's an upside to this uh, in the sense that he uh, is at war with postmodernity and political correctness and all of the stuff that he's become famous for. Uh, and that, uh, like I said, it, 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 it actually provides an intellectual foundation for people who need that. And, and from an integral perspective, we're not necessarily against culture wars. Uh, because we realize that conflict is one of the ways that we fight our way forward. Uh, but he is, um, to many of us, it, it's a philosophy that is boring <laughs> because we're kind of over the fight and we see a way of integrating and there's a way of moving forward. And so that's what I want to talk about is, you know, some of the particular problems that are caused by this idea that, that post-modernity is fundamentally a wrong turn. And I'm going to start here by playing an interview that uh, Peterson had quite recently, I think, uh, February 13th, with uh, Jonathan Rowan, who is an integral thinker, uh, clearly, and you'll see in this, um, in this tape. And he, he gets uh, at... At, at Jordan Peterson, just on this issue of can't we see postmodernity as a, a continued development of a self-authoring person, and um, and Peterson says no, that it's it's a, it's a it's a it's a um, ideology, not a stage of development. And when he talks about stages of development here, he talks about equi equilibrated states, 
and this is a Piaget term for, you know, what happens is children grow and they have these equilibrated states where they have a stability. And so that's just a little definition there. So let's go to this. Got it. So, so, so if somebody's in one of those states and that state just happens to be one of strong emphasis on inclusion, strong emphasis on dealing with past injustices and strong emphasis on sort of, you know, equalizing society in certain ways. They feel that that's what they're called upon to respond to. They feel mm-hmm. as though that is their self-authorship, is to speak mm-hmm. to that. Um, I don't believe it can be. Okay, why not? Because none of those are their ideas. Well, what, what if they... They're ideological ideas. Well, is it not possible for someone to take upon themselves a cr- critical relationship to that so that it becomes their own? Yes. Right. It's definitely possible to do that, but it very rarely happens. And, but it can happen and that can be a good thing. If it, look, I mean, it's always a good thing when you take a set of abstract moral principles and unite them with your own experience. I mean, there's, an, there's a deep Christian idea that you're supposed to uh, uh, imitate Christ, right? That, that's the most, that's the deepest of, of, of Christian ideas. Jung wrote a lot about that. It's like, that doesn't mean you travel to the Middle East and dress in white robes and carry a cross. Like, that happened 2,000 years ago. What it means is that you bring the doctrine to life in your own life, right? Really in the specific particularities of your own life. And so the first thing I would say is that if you try to do that with an ideology, it immediately ceases to be an ideology because you actually can't do that. The, the, your life will burst the bounds of the ideology. But I would say that to the degree that you start to make the ideology truly personal, that you also start to transform it in ways that are beneficial. The, the problem with the ideology is it's a universal set of solutions. And, and you think, well, that's great. It's like, well, yeah, except it eradicates the particularities. And that's not great at all. So, I mean, ideology is tyrannical when it's, we're sort of unconsciously subject to it and it's shaping our actions and our lives. But there's also a kind of ideology that's our own critical relationship to a set of ideas and how we embody them and experience them in our lives. I wouldn't necessarily call... See, one of the things that I've strived to do is to distinguish between a genuine religious system and an ideology. An ideology is a parasite on a religious system. So a religious system has to have a variety of elements, and, and I detail them out a lot in Maps of Meaning. Um, I, I won't go through them. But, but it, it's, the thing about a religious view of the world is that the positives and negatives are both included. So, so the individual is a hero, but also an adversary. Culture is a tyrant, but also a wise king. Nature is a beautiful, wondrous, uh, revolutionary, transformative force, and also cancer and Anopheles mosquitoes and the plague. And ideologies don't play that game. They only take, they take, they pick and choose their narrative characters. No, I understand, but, but surely it's possible then on the, along those same lines for someone to say, look, white privileged men are fine and often wonderful people doing great work but they have too much power and there are other people who, are, who don't have access to those worlds and those opportunities because of that. As soon as they bias. use the terminology white privilege, I'm out of the discussion. Right, well, is that not going to... That sounds ideological to me. I mean, that sounds like something that you are subject to, that you can't see beyond or relate to. No, I to, don't think so. I it think feels to me like the you're, nexus ca- of you're a, captive to that, that critique in such a way that you can't see any possible good in it. No, I understand the, I understand the motivations that are driving the use of that terminology, I think, better it, than the person who's using the terms. But in your experience, in a particular context, yeah. but this issue is happening around the world in multiple contexts, yeah. where people who feel marginalized, who feel they have, you know, feel they've lost out in certain ways, who might try and tidy the room, might try and sort themselves out, yeah. but still find they can't get a job, can't get enough money, 
can't get access to no, what I'm, they want. No, I'm, I'm not clear at all that that's the happen. case in the West. No, I don't believe okay. that. I mean, we know perfectly well, for example, that the best predictors of success in the West are intelligence and conscientiousness. Right. All right, there's a lot there to unpack, and I'm going to do that in, in the rest of this podcast, but just a couple things quickly. Uh, when he talks about when you try to um, make a religion uh, out of an ideology, it immediately ceases to be an ideology, and your life will burst the bounds of the ideology. And that's true, but what we would say from an integral perspective is that every stage uh, has an ideology, first of all. Uh, every stage has a, what he's calling a universal set of solutions that eradicate the particularities. Uh, traditionalism, for instance, Christianity, is it's indeed saturated in terms of, of meaning. Uh, and it is also uh, delivers a universal solution, accept Jesus, and asks for obedience and conformity. And at some point, human evolution bursts out of that. And we burst out of all stages uh, because we get the download that they are there to deliver to us. At modernity, the idea is that everybody becomes rational, that uh, human rights, not obedience, but uh, that my own volition matters. That becomes the new ideology, the new, in a sense, religion. Uh, Postmodernity has a universe, universal set too. Postmodernity, um, you know, it's, it's funny, and, and we need to respect postmodernity for this. After the first half of, 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 of the 20th century, with all of its uh, totalitarian world wars, bombs, you know, the whole bit, the next stage of development was a stage of development that became sensitive. That's not an ideology. That's an unfolding of human history in the breasts of people for whom it happened. And it's a sensitivity that wants to rehabilitate, to rescue, to bring back online the people who have been left behind by the previous stages, the, the losers in modernity, the people who can't compete. They don't have a lot of merit for the meritocracy. The people in traditionalism who are the sinners, you know, the heretics. The people in the earlier stages who were basically the impoverished, the prey, the serfs. All these people who, that's what postmodernity's ideology is, but it's also more than that. They're all more than that. So we can look at it in terms of uh, one of the big bugaboos that Jordan Peterson talks about, and, and a lot of people who are his fans do, and, and they're right, actually, but but, but it's the idea of political correctness and, uh, and, and, and controlled speech and thought. And that's really what got him on the national stage or the international stage about a year and a half ago when he refused to uh, go along with a new code in the Civil Rights Code in Canada. He's a professor at, at Toronto University uh, that he would not use gender neutral pronouns because it was a law and that was for speech. And so that's really been the pivot for his, uh, you know, his movement of the intellectual world, which has really happened. Uh, so, but what we can see is that there's a political correctness at every stage of development. At traditional, you know, you don't want to blaspheme God 
it, it can be bad for you if you do. Uh, and that's even today in theocracies where you could be whipped for saying the wrong thing. So the idea that political correctness is just a postmodern phenomena, you know, there's always been a thought police that's always been a speech police. And it was far more and is far more brutal in traditionalism than it is in postmodernity. Uh, also in traditionalism, uh, you know, there's just naturally what we would call racist. They would say, you know, clannish. They, they trade on patronage. They're tribal. Uh, you know, they preference their people over the others. And that is an ever-increasing circle as we evolve of the people that are inside our circle as part of us, the same as us, and the people who are outside who are not as worthy of moral consideration. And, you know, so, it, it, so that's traditionalism. And it's just naturally that way. It's racist in, in, in that way that, uh, you know, most of human history has been. Uh, so modernity also has a political correctness and a thought police in a sense. Think about it. If you're at a meeting <laughs> at work and somebody starts arguing for a plan of action because God revealed it to them in a vision, well, you know, let's just say that would be politically incorrect, you know. And yet that kind of argument that God revealed it to me, this is what we should do, people, um, that would be absolutely acceptable at the earlier stages of both uh, traditionalism and earlier. Uh, in fact, it would probably win the day, depending on how beautifully you transmitted it, uh, if, and if God's voice came out of a burning bush or something. But in the modern world, you're just going to creep everybody out, you know. So, you know, there's a thought and speech police there, and it has been well enforced. Uh, and in the postmodern world, they have one too. Um, and... In this case, the poster boy is the guy who worked at Google, who violated the new postmodern speech code by saying things about women and men, that they have differences and preferences and personalities that are hardwired and so forth and pre presented evidence and whatever. You could take it or leave it. But it offended the sensibility of his coworkers because the center of gravity there, at least in the human resources department and so forth, is postmodern. And so he was fired. And I don't like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, from an integral perspective, we're hip to all of it. And we want to recognize it everywhere it shows up. Uh, but we also don't want to see it as some, you know, malevolent recapitulation of the gulag that is trying to drag us back into some dark pit of evil. It's just the thought police, that's all. And actually at postmodern, it is relative to the earlier stages uh, pretty benign, which is not to say that it, it is benign and that it ought not be fought. And this is where I support Peterson. It, there is a new dominator hierarchy that takes place at post-modernity. And, you know, I get it from my own experience. In I was at the Masters of Divinity program at Naropa University here in Boulder, which is a small private university, Buddhist-based, founded by the T Tibetan Rinpoche, uh, Chogam Trumpa, and very postmodern, also a lot of integral sensibilities at Naropa. But when I was there, it was particularly postmodern. And, and the dominator hierarchy, hierarchy had been inversed. 
so that the more victim status you could have, you're a woman, you're a poor, of color. Uh, I was gay, thank God, because otherwise I was a middle-aged white guy who was there as a dilettante, you know, and I still had to pay. But, um, but it can be brutal. It really can. And there were times when I was just shut down and uh, it, 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 you learned what you could say and what, what you couldn't. Uh, but over time, our little cadre, there were like 14 of us, we sorted it out at least to the point where we loved each other. We certainly loved each other at the end. Uh, did we convince each other? No. But we had beaten our swords into plowshares for the most part. Uh, but it's clearly a problem, and I think one that has gotten far worse in academia particularly. Uh, Andrew Sullivan uh, published an article, I think it's in New York Magazine, recently where he talked about, take it seriously. Take the postmodern or the progressive thought police seriously because it's escaping the academia and has entered the human resources department. Peterson talks about this too, sort of the whole human resource uh, uh, profession in, uh, in companies and corporations and to be aware of it. And that there's some bad shit that's the part of it. So fair enough. And we do want to notice that. And we are, you know, against dominator hierarchies. Now, um, I would also say, and, and this is from a um, um, integral point of view, we want to see the piece of the truth that the postmodern progressives bring to the party that weren't there before. And I think of my classmates at Naropa in the MDiv department, and these were what you would call, in fact, we, call, we called ourselves proudly this at the time, social justice warriors. That's become a sort of an uh, epithet lately. But they were that in the best sense of the word. As I said, I was there, you know, as a, a lark. But these people were there to work their asses off for the disadvantaged and the animals and the environment and the whole postmodern agenda uh, for very little money. And that was what they were dedicating their life to. And what is it that they see? You know, they, 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 they don't opt out of the white privilege conversation. And, and I do think that Rowan was right to challenge Peterson that, boy, that you opt out of any conversation about that is, um, seems ideological. And, and it does because, you know, clearly, White privilege has existed in our culture, uh, and it. And, and, and here's where Peterson is right, and 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 a lot of people who argue this are right. It has been made illegal in the exteriors. That is, you are not allowed to discriminate according to race or uh, religion or female, male, and that sort of thing. That's all illegal. That is enormous progress. But what the postmodernists also realize is that there's an internal racism that's, you know, more unconscious that we're, and, 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 and sexism, you know, where if you have, uh, think about it yourself, do a little thought experiment. 
if you get a resume from a young John Smith versus Juan Smith versus Jamal Smith, there's research to say that John Smith gets, I don't know how many times more responses than Juan, who gets more responses than Jamal. That's all part of what is being pointed out here. And sort of the unconscious norms where in workplaces where men unconsciously dominate and women unconsciously submit, there's nothing wrong with pointing that out, you know, in looking at that. That doesn't mean that Western civilization has to be dismantled. It means that we can move forward, and we have been. And I think the Me Too movement is an enormous a move forward in a uh, in a ringing out of a sexism that wasn't unconscious at all it was conscious and all of a sudden it becomes outrageous you know it was accepted and Harvey Weinstein was joked about at the at the Oscars for years everybody knew and then all of a sudden it's outrageous now you can see there's moral preening and there's all kinds of crap all of that comes along with it but we can all feel it in our own, the shift. This is raising consciousness, people. This is the realization that women get to have a sphere of safety. And even if they're wearing high heels, even if they're wearing lipstick, and, 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 and um, Peterson has this famous interview with Vice where he talks about, you know, these are sexual signals. You know, we haven't sorted this out. He's right. Uh, but we are sorting it out. I mean, his, his thing is we don't know what the rules are. Now, it's very traditional. He wants the rules. Well, the rules are a moving, you know, it's a, it's a moving target. So, um, you know, these are all worth um, staking out. And, and I would also point out that just as the extremists at every level, the, you know, the religious fanatics that go off in the monastery or whatever, you know, we, we don't want them to be violent, but you know, the, 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 the people who are material, scientific materialists to the point where everything is reduced to stuff, to material, uh, and to postmodernists who are, you know, the extreme of the social justice warriors. They are staking out territory for all of humanity. You don't have to buy the whole thing to get the appropriate download but they are increasing the playing field. And that's worthy, you know? And it's also liberating in a way. I mean, it, it's like this, uh, this consent um, movement, if you will, that are, is going on in campuses where, you know, it's not just no means no, it's yes means yes, that you have to have an affirmative consent in order to have sex. And, you know, when that first, people first started talking about that, I thought, oh, please, you know. But, you know, the more I think about it, is it actually the worst thing in the world that a young man and a young woman would actually talk and connect over what they want to do sexually and be conscious about it, uh, even in real time? You know, and is that ultimately a wet blanket? Or is that a liberation? And I would argue for the latter. And I would use something that uh, Peterson talks about a lot. And it's this idea that, you know, what's up with this 50 shades of gray in this whole bondage or discipline movement? And 
and he he thinks it's it's a shadow of the anti-masculinity that is part of post-modernity. And he may be right about that. I think there's probably probably some truth to that. But it is also the community, <laughs> the people who do that stuff have super juicy sex. And it's just one of the central tenets of the whole thing as, is that you communicate and you say what your safe word is and you say what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do. And when you put that out on the table and say, okay, baby, here I am, then that is a liberation to actually bring back online the masculine-feminine polarity, I could say, but also just the polarity of domination and submission, which is just part of the juice of of being human. You know, know, for most of human history, that's all we had was domination and submission. We have stages, we have levels that have been built on top of that that civilize it and, and have rejected it and have sort of tried to put it in the shadows. But further development says, hey, wait a second, let's bring that out of the shadow. And let's play with that. And let's have a good time. And I think that's actually where we're headed. You know, in the sacred world to come, as I say, we're going to be riding each other around like ponies. But we're going to be doing it deliberately, consciously, joyfully. And we're going to have all kinds of ways of being together that are conscious. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of good with how some of this is unfolding. So this whole idea of domination and submission and dominator hierarchies is a big part of, of Jordan Peterson's um, you know, sort of thesis about life. And he, you know, his first chapter of his book is about, by the way, here's his book, 12 Rules for Life. And he um, starts out with the lobsters and how they dominate each other and how the just domination is and dominator hierarchies are built into the system. And that um, they're still online. They are still online for sure. But there are stages beyond dominator hierarchies. For one thing, post-modernity comes in and seeks to eliminate all hierarchies. All these historic narratives of superiority of my religion, my people, all of that horseshit is, you know, there is no truth. It's all just flatland. And that's actually progress. It doesn't feel like progress, especially if it's your dominator hierarchy that's being gored. But it does clear the system for the next stage of development, which is an understanding that integral is trying to get its arms around. And and that is this idea of natural hierarchy or chief of which is, is evolution itself development that nine year olds are not defective 12 year olds. And then there's 18 year olds and that each of them is precious hundred percent. And each of them has this, this different capacities and capabilities, uh, including some that nine year, nine year olds have that 18 year olds don't like magic, things like that. So, you know, we can sort this all out, but I want to play a, um, a piece from Peterson talking to Camille Paglia, I believe was her name, P-A-G-L-I-A, who I often love. She's a sort of an iconoclastic. She considers herself transgender. Uh, she, uh, she used to be a lesbian. 
Um, and, um, and she's, uh, a, you know, a, a great, uh, iconoclastic thinker. She, she, she's also like, um, Peterson, uh, polarized against postmodernity. Now, but here's the problem. You know, this is something my wife has pointed out too. She said, well, men are going to have to stand up for themselves, but here's the problem. I know how to stand up to a man who's, who's, uh, unfairly trespassing against me. And the reason and actually, I do want to say that before this, they were talking about people who come to his talks and this one particular woman who is organizing resistance and counter demonstrations to his talks and calls him a Nazi and so forth and, you know, has swastikas and the whole bit. So that's what he's talking about. The reason I know that is because the parameters for my resistance are quite well defined, which is we talk, we argue, we push, and then it becomes physical, right? Like if, if we move beyond the boundaries of civil discourse, we know what the next step is. Okay, that's forbidden in, in discourse with women. And so I don't think that men can control crazy women. I don't think, I really don't believe it. I think that they have to throw their hands up in, 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 in what? In, in, it's not even disbelief. It's that the cultural, there's no step forward that you can take under those circumstances because if the man is offensive enough and crazy enough, the, the reaction becomes physical right away or at least the threat is there. And when men are talking to each other in any serious manner, that underlying threat of physicality is always there, especially if it's a real conversation and it keeps the thing civilized to some degree. You know, if you're talking to a man who wouldn't fight with you under any circumstances whatsoever, then you're talking to someone to whom you have absolutely no respect. But I can't see any way. For example, there's a, there's a woman in, in Toronto who's been uh, organizing this movement, let's say, against me and some other people who are going to do a free speech um, um, event, and she managed to organize quite effectively. And she's quite... Um, offensive, you might say. She compared us to Nazis, for example, which, you know, publicly, yeah. using the swastika, which wasn't really something I was all that fond of. But I, I'm defenseless against that kind of female insanity because the techniques that I would use against a man who was employing those tactics are forbidden to me. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, like, it seems to me that it isn't men that have to stand up and say enough of this, even though that is what they should do. It seems to me that it's sane women who have to stand up against their crazy sisters and say, look, enough of that, enough man-hating, enough pathology, enough bringing disgrace on us as a, as a gender. But the problem there, and, and then I'll stop my little tirade, is that most of the women I know who are sane are busy doing sane things, right? They're off, they have their career, they have their family, they're quite occupied, and they don't seem to have the time or maybe even the interest to go after their their crazy harpy sisters. And so I don't see any regulating force for that, that terrible femininity. And it seems to me to be invading the culture and undermining the, the masculine power of the culture in a way that's, I think, fatal. I really do believe that. I, I, too, I too believe that these are this is symptomatic of the decline of Western culture. And it, and, and it will just go down flat. I don't think people realize that you know, masculinity still exists okay, in the world as a code among jihadists. Okay? And, yes. and when you have passionate masculinity okay, circling the borders like the Huns and the Vandals during the Roman Empire, that, that's what I I see. I see this culture rotting from within, okay, and, and disemboweling itself, literally. Now my All right. So once again, I think you see a 
astounding overstatement of, you know, the being surrounded by the Huns and the Vandals and disemboweling ourselves and ay 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 with the, you know, uh, fashion, all that stuff. It reminds me of where a lot of my liberal bolder friends go with Trump, you know, that he's Hitler and, you know, we're going back to the you know, crystal doct. Uh, but, you know, it's effective in stirring up the troops, I guess. Uh, and these, they, 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 there's, there's something functional there. But again, just so boring in a way. And so it seems so uh, unnecessarily, you know, uh, alarming or alarmist. And regarding this idea that we are in danger of regressing to the circumstances of the first half of the 20th century with these world wars and fascism and communism and all of that, I think integral theory can actually help us understand what's going on here and take a little part in where we've come. Uh, it's true that these were in many ways modern countries that did this. They were. They were technological. They were scientific. Uh, Germany, Japan, the United States, all of us were in a technological world. We were in the middle of the 20th century. But we still had uh, traditional interiors. And, and that's the nature of evolution is that, you know, we, we see it as coming online. A simple way of seeing it is it comes online in first person in terms of our own consciousness. It comes online and unfolds in terms of second person, in terms of the culture and how we relate to each other and identify, and in third person, in terms of the technology and the systems that we create for ourselves, from horticulture to agriculture to you know, industrial and so forth. And you can see as we walk up these stages of development that, that those change. But it's not always even. And so the first half of the 20th century can be seen as sort of the opposite of a sweet spot in history. It was a sour spot in history where countries had become modern in terms of weaponry and logistics and concentration camps and nukes and all of that. But they hadn't become modern in the interiors. The, the humanist thing hadn't fully come online. There was still this idea of romantic nationalism and militant nationalism and, uh, you know, where... Uh, my group, my nation is superior and the you know, uber man and we need to dominate. And that's traditionalism and warrior and previous to that, that's human history. Genocide is nothing new in human history. Uh, it was standard procedure for most of human history. Uh, but to do it with modern technology has a certain kind of extra horror to it that actually is what moved the culture forward so that we have post-World War II, this period of long peace that have been, is often commented on, this radical diminishment of violence in all areas of life in the modern world, uh, where modernity and the sense of um, the uh, rights of every individual uh, and even post-modernity, where th this idea of one culture being better than the other is sort of dismantled, that this is progress. And so we end up with people who are modern in the interiors as well. And what you realize at modernity in the interiors is 
fighting doesn't get you where trading does. I mean, you, you move from, you know, dominating to let's play together. And as I said, this is the way we, we fight our way forward. And we also the other F word our way forward. And so this is the sort of modern um, sensibility that has, you know, Germany and Japan being the most civilized nations on earth. They're great global citizens. And the idea that Germany would go, um, um, attack France, I mean, it's just, it's off the table. And we can, we can rely, we, that's reliable. That's not, that regression's not going to hap, happen absence some, you know, complete, you know, asteroid hits or something, you know, where all of a sudden we're back in the Stone Age. Uh, now, when I say that these cultures have become modern in the interiors, uh, I would say that roughly two-thirds of the populations of these countries have become modern in the interiors. There's still a traditional strata that all of us can feel in our own minds and bodies, even if we've transcended it, we do include it. Uh, but there are some people that's their center of gravity. And they, you know, in America, they still don't get how we could still be at war 15 years later in Afghanistan when we could have bombed them back to the Stone Age. But fortunately, this is, this is moral development. The majority of people don't feel that way. And that is, that's a ratcheting up that is reliable. So I think we could take some faith in that, uh, which is a traditional value. We have faith in the system, faith in God. You know, this is, this, we've grown up. And, and even his specific complaint here, where he talks about he's defenseless against these women. And that the recourse that he has with men, which is, punch them is forbidden to him with women and that that i'm not sure he thinks that's necessarily a bad thing but he feels that the constraint and you know that's he has many options open to him with the his detractors and with this woman you know he could walk away he could make his own sign that says no lady you're the nazi he could use his amazing verbal acuity and vast knowledge to win an argument with her. Uh, one of his fans, or, 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 or make her look bad. You know, one of his fans can videotape it and put it on the internet. There are countless such videos like that on the internet. Uh, you know, and I don't, he says, I don't know how you control crazy women. Well, you know, you, if, if you get a restraining order if you have to, but you don't, uh, bemoan the fact that you can't punch them. And, and, and what you actually ought to do at some point when you are over, you know, the passion of the moment, go off and lick your wounds and consider whatever nugget of the truth this woman might have in her big basket of crazy, because there probably is one. And so where he's coming from is from, again, this traditionalist center of gravity where, you know, the, the threat is always there of physical violence. It's what keeps the world civilized. And it's true. It does keep the pre-modern world civilized. Fear of, you know, physical violence is what works there. But after modernity fully comes online, um, you don't do that anymore. You know, uh, that doesn't mean that you don't uh, defend yourself against pre-modern people. If you are approached in a dark alley 
and mugged by somebody, you want to be able to turn into a lethal weapon. And so physicality is absolutely part of it. And we want even that red warrior thing online, but only in self-defense, only when we need it, only when we're dealing with pre-modern people in a violent situation that they started. And that's a pretty bright line that I think actually keeps the world civilized. And, and, and yet that's not, you know, there's an honor, there's a feeling of, you know, he talks about it a lot. You know, he, he's ambivalent about gay marriage uh, because he thinks, you know, it messes with institutions that have been here forever. It's, it's not a matter of rights for him. He talks about um, that um, he would never marry a woman who wouldn't take his last name. Uh, yesterday, he tweeted um, to this uh, a critic who wrote a, 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 a um, article, Pakja Mishra. He wrote Jordan Peterson and fascist mysticism in the New York Review. Of, I'm not. I'm not sure where it is. I'll link to it. But um, uh, 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 Peterson tweeted, "Are you calling me a fascist? You sanctimonious prick!" If you were in my room at the moment, I'd slap you happily. So, um, yeah, so meeting insult with violence, uh, not good. And, um, and actually, the article that uh, Mankaj Mishra wrote is one of the more thoughtful critiques of his book. I've read a, many that were just plain old snide and just didn't get it and didn't even try. This guy uh, traces you know, the sort of fascist impulse through Jung and, and uh, Joseph Campbell and a lot of um, Peterson's heroes. And, you know, believe me, this guy needs a good dose of integral thinking too, but at least it was thoughtful. And uh, anyway, all right. So, um, and I do want to say the other thing about fascism and, and Maoism and all of that stuff. Clearly, that did arise, you know, and, and I think these, uh, Jordan Peterson's thesis that, the, you know, when modernity comes in and science undermines the belief in God and religion is weakened, that that means that you're weakening the culture's adherence to the ethics of that religion. And when you weaken those ethics, you leave a void, uh, and it, you, it's, you know, it can be filled with this um, you know, craziness, or this sort of new secular religion of Stalin and you know, Hitler and Pol Pot and Mao Zedong and all of them, and that free speech is the antidote to that. And that's, that's fair enough. But, um, you know, the problem with the way Peterson treats religion and religion is a big part of his thing. And, and again, I'm going to make a distinction between do I think that the way Peterson handles religion in his book is very fruitful for the people who it is meant for? Yes. He brings a, he's, he's rooted in Christianity. He's done many lectures on the sort of archetypal and mythological and moral, um, uh, gifts of Christianity. Uh, he's ambivalent about is Christianity literally true? And, uh, but that's good because a lot of the people that he's dealing with, they can't quite go there either. But they do want the download 
of what Christianity brings, the, the upside of the download, if you will. And, um, but if you're, if you're, if, if you think that, you know, Christianity or these great axial religions are the only religions and any, everything that came since then have been ideologies, then you've put a ceiling on evolution. You're, you're not seeing that these are actually all uh, unfolding worldviews and that modernity's, you know, ringing out of the magic and enchantment of life is as painful as it is and as how unwilling uh, people are to go with that, and, and, and they should be. Uh, it is a necessary stage. And then post-modernity starts bringing sort of irrational religion back on, and, and, you know, we'll do dances in the woods and sweat lodges and so forth. And Peterson actually does that, by the way. He is part of, uh, he's affiliated somehow with one of the indigenous Canadian tribes in his uh, part of the world. And, you know, he's done stuff with them and is uh, very respectful and very respected. And so that's all good, you know. Uh, but still, there's that lid that he imposes, that ceiling that just uh, stops the process of, of, of evolution. And it leads to things like this. And here's a quote. Uh, he says, I think the Bible is true, but I don't know what that means. I don't know how to reconcile it with the idea, for example, that the universe is 13 billion years old, or that we evolved over this 4 billion year period from nothing, essentially. There is this overlay on top of this mythological landscape that is also true, but I don't know how both of these can be true at the same time. And let me say that from an integral perspective, I do, I know how they can both be true at the same time. They're both true in different domains. Uh, is Christianity true? Yes. It's truer than true in the sense that it's capital T true, which means it's true without necessarily being accurate in its particularities. But it uh, downloads codes and instructions for life. It tells us a story, as all great religions do, of a world that is bigger than this life and that is drenched in meaning. And by receiving that, we feel enlarged and enlightened and enlivened. And, 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 and even better than that, we feel seen and loved. And that's really, the, the, in my sense, the big problem with his way of dealing with Christianity is that, you know, when you talk about the moral uh, t teachings of Christianity, all great, uh, you know, love the neighbor, all that good stuff. Uh, when you talk about the archetypes you know, of the virgin birth and the sacrifice and death and resurrection. Uh, these are great. The virgin birth is just an acknowledgement, it's in many cultures, of that we are born not just of the mother and father, but of the indwelling spirit that is, you know, part of the fabric of the universe, that is the loving intelligence, the creative force of the universe. That's 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 that. Uh, the, the sacrifice, death, and resurrection is an ongoing process of laying down our small self and sacrificing it so that we can get bigger. And, you know, th that, these are all beautiful. And this is, but there's another stage where it is actually 
true too, where there is a loving creator God, for lack of a better word, who not only has all these lessons, all these wonderful archetypes and you know things that we want to imitate Christ, all the good stuff, but it's also living and sees me and loves me and holds me precious and that I can relate to and I can surrender to and I can sit in his or her or its lap and I can let, I can be lived instead of just living and this world is not my home and it's mysterious and I can use the myths and I can use all the teachings of all the religions all the way back to the magical and all of that good stuff as beautiful art forms, as, as transmissions, but I don't have to hold them as being true in the exteriors, which is the domain of science. So, you know, for me to believe that Jesus walked on the water, I'd need a videotape. You know, I'm very comfortable saying that that probably didn't happen. Do I rule it out entirely? No, it's a mysterious world. But I think I feel comfortable going forward with the idea that, you know, I could throw that bathwater out and still keep the living, precious, personal presence of a creator God. And at Integral, we could tease those things apart and hold them both at the, fully at the same time, not in some blenderized, homogenized way, but we could hold them fully. And, um, and that's a good thing. So yeah, science does wring the magic out of life temporarily till we move beyond, you know, that sort of hard materialist modernity. But paradoxically, it does actually deliver to us a very beautiful and potent new uh, creation story that tells us that 13.8 billion years ago, something blew out of nothing and turned into stardust, which turned into dirt and the earth and happened and, and, uh, and then dirt got up and wrote poetry and dirt got up and became you and me in this moment. And wow, that's the story of evolution, of this you know, flourishing of, of creativity and complexity, and we would argue consciousness that was there at the beginning and just continues to complexify in ways that are jaw-dropping. And um, that there is a spiritual path in there somewhere, you know, that, that there's a new religion to be had that, um, that passes all the tests of science except the science test that says material is the only thing that's real. And I'm with Jordan Peterson here where uh, I don't see any reason to believe that the only thing that's real is dead matter that has this sort of subjective delusion of being real at some level of complexity but that living spirit is also a piece of it and there's evolving with it. And it's material, it's, it's mysterious, but it's also illuminating and enlivening and enlarging and, and very, very beautiful, very good, true and beautiful.
So yeah, so I I, I think I'll I'll end it there. Um, I um, like I said, I do think that he is very evolutionarily potent. He is a very very worthy spokesman and fighter for a. Uh, a, a worldview that needed to be brought back online in a healthier way. And um, I think that by not seeing that that evolutionary force continues, uh, that he gets sidetracked and goes down a lot of rabbit holes that are interesting for people who like rabbit holes. And uh, there are a lot of people who do, and that's part of the process of, you know, people who are downloading this, they need to fight. They need to get in the game. They need to get in the arena with the infidels. Fair enough, as long as it's nonviolent. And you don't smack people, Jordan. Uh, But beyond that, um, there's a way of holding it all uh, that is, I think, far more, far bigger and far more uh, alive and um, comprehensive and all kinds of other good words, I'm sure. All right. So thank you so much, everybody, for listening. If you're interested in um, some of the stuff I've been talking about, I've done many, many, many podcasts on all these topics in culture and religion and politics and Trump and all of it. Uh, you can find that at thedailyevolver.com. I'm also on Integral Life. I do live webcasts there. Uh, you can go to Integral Life and see the work of Ken Wilber. You can read his books, uh, the, the Brief History of Everything's a Good Start, Steve McIntosh's Evolution's Purpose. Um, there is a whole integral community of people who are working with this, what we see is the next stage of human unfolding into uh, an ever-increasing dimensions of goodness, truth, and beauty, to which I say hallelujah, and um, check it out if you're interested. Okay, thanks again. See you next time on The Daily Evolver. (laughs) 